Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 278, The Fall of Bali and the Battle of Badong Strait. Last time, not only had the Malayan Peninsula and Singapore fell, the latter on February 15th, but also the Celebes and Maluku Islands before the month was out. Yet the Japanese Empire was not done. As the Allies were at a low point, it was paramount to grab as much territory as they could to access materials that the Americans would no longer sell to them, like oil, but also to deny that resource and others to the enemy, like rubber, tin, and the anti-malaria drug quinine. But more than that, Tokyo wanted a solid wall of occupied islands and territories to stymie the Allies. When the time came and the Western powers tried to retake their lands, the Empire would make them bleed in the process, and only then would negotiations begin. The Japanese military could not believe that the soft, easy-living Americans could deal with deprivations or have the stomach for a long, drawn-out fight. So, the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere, that was to symbolize Asia for Asians, was currently being expanded at the tip of a spear. And though some of it would be lost when the talks began, Japan would come out respected, at peace, and larger than before, just as had the Europeans and Americans during their time of expansion. As for one of the many coils coming out of Japan to wrap itself around another's possession, the next one was heading towards Sumatra. In truth, Java was on the list as well, but first Sumatra had to fall to serve as a stepping stone. For together, with the other nearby conquered islands, they would all serve as a constant threat to the Allies' western wall, i.e. Australia. And lastly, with Singapore taken, the Allies of ABDA, the American, British, Dutch, and Australian command, had been pushed south to Sumatra, so the Japanese would follow them there. Originally, when war broke out, the Empire was not overly concerned with Bali, just off the east coast of Java, and another part of the Netherlands' East Indies. After all, the Empire had planned and had taken Kendari on the southeast corner of the Celebes Island. Simply, it had one of the best airstrips in Southeast Asia, so should serve for future strikes in the area. Yet the Japanese would soon find out that, although the airfield there could be counted on, the weather could not. The same went for Banjar Masin in southern Borneo. The planned regular bombing of the primary Abdin naval base at Sorabaya on Java's northeast coast was all too infrequent, which was unacceptable. It had to be smashed before Japanese troop ships could make for Java safely. It seems that Bali, after all, would have to be taken to give the Japanese bomber fleet another option. 
besides which, as it was known as the Island of the Gods, and a tourist mecca before the war, it would not hurt to have a slice of paradise within the expanded empire. Further, the capture of the Denpasar airfield near Bali's southern coast would give the Japanese a forward airbase that was only two miles off the eastern shore of Java. And lastly, taking Bali would cut the air route that Allied planes were currently using to reach Java. The Dutch had already asked for help in defending this island, and its only chance of survival was air power. But with Bali in Japanese hands, the pilots currently on Java would have to make do. Yet the Japanese recognized that landing troops on Bali would be tricky. They needed to get their ships in, unload troops, and get out before whatever planes were on Java could try to intercept them. What was needed was speed and audacity, which the men of the Empire had demonstrated they had ever since December 7th. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. As this attack was planned rather quickly, the invasion force left Makassar on the Celebes southwest corner on February 17th, after sunset. This fleet had two transports with four destroyers that stayed close by. Just behind this force, should any enemy ships try to sneak up from behind, nothing was expected to be out in front, was the IJN light cruiser Nagara, the flagship of Rear Admiral Kiji Kubo, and three more destroyers. Aboard the two transports was a battalion, but one company short, one mountain gun platoon, some radio and field units, an engineer platoon, in case the invasion did not happen quickly enough and the enemy were able to destroy facilities before being captured, and, for some extra punching power, a part of the 1st Formosa Infantry Regiment of the 48th Infantry Division. These men were from the Philippines, as the battle there was all but over. As Admiral Kubo's fleet was coming together, just off the southwest coast of the Celebes, it was spotted by a reconnaissance plane from ABTA. But this was just a snapshot in time. The Allies could not tell exactly where the Japanese would make for. Most guessed Timor, about 400 miles east of Bali. Besides, the ABDA air defenses were in no condition to strike at the moment. They were currently scattered, trying to engage the multifaceted attacks of the Japanese, and had recently been bloodied in trying to stymie the invasion of southern Sumatra. But more on that later. So, if there was to be no air response to the coming enemy fleet, it would have to be a sea battle. But the Allies were even less prepared for that. To be sure, the Americans and Dutch had warships in the area, but they were all suffering from various degrees of damage from recent battles, or were low on fuel, as the Japanese attacks had caught them unawares. 
To the south of Java were stationed two Dutch light cruisers, six American destroyers, but two of them were so badly damaged they were ordered to Australia for repairs. Meanwhile, on the north coast of Java sat another Dutch light cruiser. Actually, there were three in total. But again, two were so damaged by recent air raids that they could not participate in any attempt to stop this latest Japanese sortie. While near southern Sumatra were four American destroyers that had just refueled there before the facilities had been demolished to ensure that they would be of no use to the Japanese. This was the dire situation that Dutch Rear Admiral Carl W. Dorman, the overall naval commander, was in, in terms of the approaching Japanese fleet. As his fleet was scattered, instead of massing them together to overwhelm the coming invaders, soon a reconnaissance would confirm that Bali was the target. Dorman did the best he could, namely telling the three groups of ships to head for Bali's east coast, to the waters of Pong Pong Bay. As they were in differing distances to Bali, each group would have their crack at the approaching enemy fleet separately. Again, the best of a bad situation. The first group, made up of the two Dutch light cruisers HNLMS De Ruter and Java, followed by three destroyers, left Tijilajap on Java's southeast coast on the afternoon of February 18th. But right away, this less-than-perfect attack plan suffered bad luck. One of the destroyers lost control of its rudder and ran aground. Dorman could not wait for repairs, so went on with his now even smaller first wave on the morning of February 19th. His hope was to reach Pong Pong Bay in time to stop the Japanese from offloading troops. The second group, the majority of that being the American 58th Destroyer Division, was ordered at full speed to make for Surabaya on the northeast coast of Java and to meet up with the Dutch light cruiser HNLMS Tromp. Their joining took place on February 18th, and off they went. They were to proceed, still at full speed, along Java's north coast, and then to sail down in between Java's east coast and Bali's west coast, then swing around and come up on Bali's east coast. Dorman's thinking was, by the time the second group came around Bali, the first group, which should already be engaging the Japanese, would need help. The third group had seven Dutch motor torpedo boats, or MTBs. They left Sorabaya on the morning of February 19th. They were also to make for Pong Pong Bay on Java's east coast. That was as far as Dorman's attack plan had evolved. For now, he knew, and passed on, that he also wanted the first group to approach Bali by sailing up its east coast. After that, Dorman's orders were simple. Take off. You are on your own. The problem was, by the time the first group reached its destination, Admiral Kubo had already landed his troops near Dan Pasar, just above Bali's southern tip. This had been done during the night of February 18th, as Dorman had been en route. By 1 a.m., the troops of the Kenamura Detachment were on shore and heading west to the Denpasar airfield. As soon as Lieutenant Colonel W.P. Rudenberg was made aware of the invasion, 
He ordered the go-ahead to detonate the explosives attached to the airfield's facilities. Yet bad luck was still with the Dutch, as his men thought the message read, Delay Execution. And the bad luck was just getting started. On the north coast of Bali, at Singaraja, the Balinese troops there, when they heard that the Japanese had landed, almost immediately deserted and left their posts. The stories coming out of China had convinced the locals they wanted no part in angering the invaders. As Admiral Dorman and his first group had not yet arrived, the only Allied vessels in the area of the disembarkation were submarines. Two, in fact, the American USS Seawolf and the British HMS Truant. At 2 a.m., they engaged the enemy vessels, but scored no hits, before being driven away by depth charges from the escorting destroyers. The Seawolf's captain was operating from poorly constructed charts and actually ran aground twice before engaging the enemy. As it was, she fired off two torpedoes, but they either missed, exploded prematurely, a common problem for American subs at this time, or exploded on shore. For the British sub Truant, it didn't go any better. She fired off six torpedoes, all missed, and then she was driven away by the escorting destroyers. Just as the two Allied submarines were engaging the enemy, word of the invasion reached Java. Abda Command responded by ordering 13 B-17 heavy bombers and seven Douglas A-24 dive bombers of the U.S. Army Air Force to be ready to take off at first light. As these planes were at Malang, halfway between the center of Java and its east coast, their attacks would hopefully arrive in time to disrupt the Japanese before they could consolidate their holdings. Just after 6 a.m. on February 19th, the first three heavy bombers were over Bali. They came without escort, but managed to evade Japanese fighter patrols. Dropping their payloads over the Japanese ships, still on the strait, no damage was witnessed by the American pilots or reported on by the Japanese crews. Soon after, four more bombers came over, but they were picked up by two enemy fighters and chased away. At 8 a.m., two more B-17s made the attempt, but their bombs scored no hits. This was followed up by two A-24 Banshee dive bombers. One of them was able to put a bomb into the engine room of the transport Sagami Maru, yet she was still operational. None of this helped the native defenders on the island. The Kanemura detachment had little trouble before the day was over, taking the airfield intact. And this last part was only due to mixed signals, which saw the installation not destroyed beforehand. With the capitulation to the north and the quick victory in the south, the battle for Bali was practically over. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. 
When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. As for the victorious Japanese troops that would not be staying on Bali as an occupation force, they were back aboard their transports by 5 p.m. that afternoon of the 19th. The last thing to do was to retrieve the landing craft that had been used, but Admiral Kubo wanted his ships out of the area ASAP. No sense in giving the enemy extra time to attack his transports again. There were other operations to complete, after all. The plan was to clear the area, but to then send back a few ships for the landing craft after sunset. Now, Admiral Kubo's flagship, with its destroyer screen, had not gone as far south as the troop ships and their escorts. By that afternoon, Kubo's group was heading north, as were the transport ships, but there was a gap in between the two groups. Of the four destroyers to the south, two stayed with the damaged transport Sagami Maru as its crew worked on its engines, while the other two destroyers headed north with the second undamaged transport ship. So now there were three groups of Japanese ships. The flagship and escorts, the fully operational transport ship and its escorts, and lastly, the damaged troop ship with its two destroyer escort. Yet, the group with the undamaged transport would only go to a spot level with the north coast of Bali. Then they would turn around to retrieve the landing craft. By then it would be dark and relatively safe. Returning to the disembarkation point at 9 p.m., the landing craft were collected by 11.50 p.m. But that was when the first naval group of Admiral Dorman reached the southern tip of Bali with his two light cruisers in the lead and the one Dutch destroyer and two American destroyers some 5,000 yards behind them. At 11.30 p.m., the Dutch light cruiser Java spotted the three enemy ships to the north. The two Dutch light cruisers wasted no time in opening fire from 2,200 yards, scoring hits on the two Japanese destroyers. This time, the element of surprise was used against the invaders. Yet Captain Abe Toshio, in command of the two destroyers, was about to deliver his own surprise to Admiral Dorman. First, Abe contacted Admiral Kubo to inform him of the enemy ships, to which the Admiral ordered the other two destroyers further north with the crippled transport to turn around and head for the fight. Next, the Admiral turned his covering fleet around as well and headed southwest at full speed. As for Admiral Dorman, believing the damage he had inflicted on the two nearby destroyers was greater than what it really was, he proceeded to the northeast and would let the three destroyers behind him finish off the nearby enemy. Yet the two Japanese destroyers Asashio and Oshio were capable of full speed, and as such, also headed northeast to cut off Dorman. Whether it was planned or not, the two Japanese destroyers ended up capping Dorman's T, that is, crossing in front of the two Dutch vessels, now in a column. This allowed the Japanese to use all their guns, while Dorman could only use his forward guns. The Dutch vessels, nevertheless, fired off nine salvos, but all missed. 
However, a 5-inch round from the Asasio struck Java's port midsection. This had all taken place in less than 10 minutes. Yet after the Java assessed its capabilities, after taking the hit, the Dutch had lost contact with the two enemy vessels. Still, Dorman was convinced he inflicted major damage on the Japanese ships, so turned south to lick his own wounds. As for the Japanese, the two destroyers continued east, which soon brought them within sight of the Dutch destroyer Piet Hein. The two American destroyers were still some four kilometers to the south. Undaunted, the Piet Hein launched two torpedoes and fired shells just after midnight on February 20th. But being outnumbered, the Dutch destroyer then laid down smoke and turned to the southeast. Yet this did not fully hide them, as the two Japanese destroyers fired off their own shells and hit the Piet Hein's boiler room at 12.15 a.m. With such damage, the Piet Hein came to a stop. Now both Japanese destroyers fire torpedoes, a total of nine, at the still ship. How many were aimed true is not known, but it was enough. The Piet Hein went down almost instantly. The captain and crew did not have time to abandon ship. By now, the two American destroyers, USS Pope and John D. Ford, were within range. As they had been ordered to head north, up the strait, they tried to maneuver the enemy in such a way to continue the fight, but in a northerly direction. At the moment, their easterly course had turned south as they tried to close in after finding out the fate of the Dutch destroyer nearby. Shells went back and forth between the four ships. The Japanese kept up an aggressive defensive stance. The Americans were still trying to turn to the north. When it was obvious the Japanese would not turn, the Americans sent out five torpedoes, laid down smoke, and broke off the engagement, heading south at full speed. This was around 12.45 a.m. At 2.09 a.m., the second Allied group, of one Dutch light cruiser and four U.S. destroyers, was just off the southern coast of Bali. The commander of the second group tried to reach the two U.S. destroyers, but got no reply. By 3.10 a.m. February 20th, the second Abder group was heading up the strait. This time, the four American vessels were in the lead, in column formation, while the Dutch Tromp brought up the rear. The plan was for the Americans to lay into any enemy vessel spotted with their torpedoes, and then the Tromp would come in to deliver the coup de grace. But then, to the northwest, close to the coast, the Americans, still heading up the strait, spotted a flashing green light. Was it an ally ship or the enemy? Commander J.B. de Meester, in overall command, did not want to engage, as it might be a friend signaling for help. But Commander Thomas Benford, aboard the USS Stewart, strongly felt that it was not a friendly. Besides, as things stood, the Allies needed every advantage they could get, so decided to attack straight away. The first two U.S. ships, the USS Stewart and Parrot, both fired off six torpedoes. But as the Americans were finding out, their fish were ineffectual for various reasons. No explosions were seen. 
Then the third U.S. ship of the line, the Pillsbury, fired off three more fish. But again, no hits were made. Now aware of the American vessels, the two Japanese destroyers, the Asashio and Oshio, left the transport to engage the enemy. Getting off several shots as they closed in on the Americans, the steward took a hit to its steering engine room. The ship was no longer under the control of its crew. As the steward slowed down and turned to the east, the three other ships behind it had to swerve in order to avoid a collision. The steward's crew reclaimed control, but by then, the two Japanese destroyers had taken advantage of the confusion and separated the Pillsbury from the other Allied ships. By now, the Pillsbury and the pursuing enemy vessels had cleared the two smaller islands off of Bali's east coast. It was 3.41 a.m. But before the Pillsbury could be attacked, the Dutch cruiser Tromp came in close, just above the enemy, and exchanged shells. One of the Japanese shells hit near the Tromp's navigational bridge, near the torpedo tubes. This hit took out the light cruiser's fire controls. A second shell hit the bridge and took out the main fire director. Whether meaning to or not, the Tromp was sacrificing itself for the Pillsbury. Other Japanese shells landed close enough to add to the Tromp's damage. Gaining some control over their weapons, the Dutch crew at 346 fired 71 shells, but only one struck true on each enemy vessel. The damage to each was not severe. The Japanese then lost contact with the enemy ships, so turned about to head back west to take up their escorting duty of the transport ship, still near Bali's east coast. The Dutch commander Meester joined his cruiser up with the Pillsbury. They decided to continue heading north, out of harm's way. But that's when they ran into the other two Japanese destroyers, now heading southwest, who had left behind the damaged transport to the north. As it worked out, the newly arrived other two Japanese destroyers, heading southwest, sailed in between the confused Allied formation. The Steward and John D. Edwards were to the north, sailing east, and the Pillsbury and Tromp were to the south of the Japanese, heading northeast. As the Japanese ships sailed by, they were attacked with torpedoes and shells by the Stuart and Pillsbury. At 3.47 a.m., Michishio was hit and so turned to the north to get away from the closer Tromp and Pillsbury. But that put them even closer to the John D. Edwards, who did not hesitate to blast away. The Michishio's engine room was struck. Coming to a stop, the crew suddenly had 13 dead and 83 wounded to deal with. All ships in the area, from both sides, continued whatever heading they were on, trying to get away from each other. But it wasn't over, yet. At 6 a.m. February 20th, Kubo's covering group, consisting of two light cruisers and three destroyers, had entered the area from the north. Kubo kept his light cruiser at the northern entrance of the Lombok Strait while sending his destroyers further south to rescue the surviving crew of the Michishio. But by this time, the third Abda group 
had rounded the southern tip of Bali. Consisting of seven Dutch motor torpedo boats, they split into two groups and sailed north, up each side of the waterway. But, not seeing any enemy vessels, they did not sail all the way up the Bali coast. They turned around and headed back to Java, taking the same route they used to get here. The Japanese ships to the north of them sailed away, back to the Celebes, unmolested, towing their damaged destroyer and tending to their injured. Epilogue The battle for Bali and the Battle of Badung Strait was over. Another Japanese victory. Right away, the victors sent additional fighters and bombers in the form of the 23rd Air Flotilla to the Denpasar Airfield in southern Bali. Now, it was time to finish up by taking Java. By this time, southern Sumatra had fallen, so that will be covered next. And now that Bali was occupied, no more planes from Darwin, Australia, could be sent to Java. Whatever was there would have to do. But in reality, with Bali and southern Sumatra in their control, beefed-up Japanese fighter sweeps would soon clear the skies over Java of Allied planes. Ironically, the Allies told the world of their naval victory at Badung Strait. They were not lying, just wrong, when they told the press that they had sunk an enemy cruiser and damaged two more cruisers, seriously, and two destroyers, seriously. In truth, one transport had been damaged, along with two destroyers. One severe, one not. That's it. When the USS Stewart entered dry dock at Sorabaya in Java, she was not braced properly, and so rolled over. She could not be fixed in time to help defend Java, so was further crippled. But when the Japanese took Java, they revived her and converted her to an anti-submarine vessel. The U.S. Navy only got her back after the war. As for the HNLMS Trump, she would be out for the rest of the war. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So it's been a while since I've done this, so I just want to thank a couple of members and people who have bought mugs and sent me photos and things like that. Um, as far as the timeline of the Japanese invasions, the various invasions, a lot of these happened at the same time, so I'm just kind of breaking them down and doing them the best I can because I really want you to understand how hard and simultaneously they hit a lot of these places most of the time, but not all the time, with overwhelming numbers, it was just that the defenders were so under-resourced because their the government's priorities were elsewhere. So um, next time is Sumatra, then we'll hit Timor, and, and then um, obviously we have Burma, the Philippines, uh, New Guinea. So we'll get to all those as fast as I can. So as far as those people who have recently become members, and basically you pay five bucks a month, you get two extra episodes a month, um, kind of... The story is behind the main story of World War II. If you are interested, you can check it out on um, the uh, website, worldwar2podcast.net. So anyways, I'd like to say welcome aboard to the latest members. Chris M. from Wald Lake, Michigan. James G. from Oviedo, Florida. Annabelle L. from London. Bradley B. from Bavard, Brevard, North Carolina. Sorry, Bradley. Simon R. from Doha, Qatar. 
Qatar. Uh, Nick M. from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. I'm sure I butchered that. Noel M. from Wollstonecraft, Australia. Jeff R. from Wall Creek, California. Avroom Home S. from Brooklyn, New York. Samuel P. from Toronto, Canada. Ronald W. from Kenmore, New York. Alexis B. from Vancouver, Canada. Lawrence M. from Bethesda, Maryland. Ebener B. from Cornell, Wisconsin. Greer D. from Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Hope I said that right. Emily H. from Houston, Georgia. Brian S. from Lancaster, California. Stephen P. from Brookstone, Indiana. That's the members. I would like to thank Jake for buying a Churchill mug. According to a source that I have, i.e. his mother, Lisa, he's not a morning person, just like Churchill was not. And so that's why the mug says, don't worry, Churchill wasn't a morning person either. And it's got a picture of him. Very scruffy, um, and you can see that on the website as well. So, Jake, happy birthday. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast, and good luck now that you've graduated with your future endeavors. As far as another person that bought a mug, Matthew B. Thank you very much, Matthew. As far as donations, there was Guy H. from Dixon, Australia. Um, and lastly, there's Mark G who sent me a whole bunch of photos, the ration books, other things that the soldiers had. So Mark, I'm still going through those photos, but those are awesome. Thank you very much for sending those. And, um, yeah, we'll get the next episode out as soon as we can. I say we, I guess that's the Royal we, uh, it's a one man show here. Soon I will have the writer and producer of Midway, the movie Midway on the show. So if you can think of any good questions you want me to ask, you can always send them to the email wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Um, I hope you're enjoying the um, Japanese attacks, the invasions, because to be honest, this was my weak point. I'd never really studied this in detail. So I'm learning a lot. I'm having a lot of fun. And that's why I started the podcast in the first place. So as usual, thank you everyone for listening. Take care. And I'll see you as soon as I can. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.